Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 23rd, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Among other things we keep tabs on is the national popular vote guaranteeing the presidency to the candidate receiving the most popular votes across 50 states and D.C. Update, the tally is 189 electoral votes, 81 votes shy of those needed. Nevada State Senate will hear a bill tomorrow. Oregon Senate recently passed a motion through and lots going on for sure. As for today, we'll devote the whole hour to Ben Leffel, who is a PhD candidate at UCI, leveraging influence of city leadership into the international arena. We'll be right back after a brief station break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, everyone, for staying tuned. My guest for the full hour is Benjamin Leffel, Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Sociology at UCI, leveraging influence of city leadership into the international arena. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science at Otterbein University in Ohio and his MA in International Affairs from the School of International Service at the American University. His research on city diplomacy, transnational networks, global climate finance, and relations with China has been published in journals such as the Hague Journal of Diplomacy. He's also done research work with the Clinton State Department and British Government Office for Science. Among the grants he's been awarded are National Science Foundation, PhD Dissertation Research Improvement Grant, Kugelman Citizenship Peacebuilding Research Fellowship, UCI Innovative Learning Technology Initiative and Long U.S.-China Institute Research Grant. He speaks Mandarin along with things. We will conduct this whole interview in English. Whenever I run into Ben at conference or workshop, he's always presenting a button-down analysis to illustrate a worthy new point. And uh, as I, I thought of that one night at the L.A. Times Book Festival, I saw this T-shirt emblazoned with the, the slogan, Love locally, act globally. Ben joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ben Liffle. Well, thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. It's good to have you. We've been planning on this for like about three months or longer, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd like for you, Ben, to lay out the path you followed that brought you to these illustrious enterprises. Well, cities are making promises, commitments around the world. Um, the thing on which long-term human survival rests is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And most emissions come from cities. Many of them are making promises around the world, but the question for me is what has actually worked? So I've been kind of in this data race to get the, uh, the best city-level greenhouse gas emissions data that I can, and it's been like pulling teeth, but I have it. 
And uh, it seems thus far the ability for cities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions seems to be a matter of climate policy, access to climate finance, loans from international banks, access to expertise. And it's actually access to expertise that is one of the things which started in Irvine is one of my variables. And I um, actually brought some hard copies with me of of uh, ICLE, which is... Uh, what does ICLE stand for? We're going to talk about that later, but I can, you cannot find it, not even on their website. What is it? Because it's in some Dutch or German language, ICLE? Not, not, not at all. It's global. The, um, but it, right, but ICLE, what does that stand for? International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. Okay. But they, they changed. It, it originally was ICLE and then the full acronym, but now it's it, now that it has grown into the biggest city environmental network on the planet, and it's part of the UN, by the way, they have uh, changed their name to ICLE dash Local Governments for Sustainability. And we're, we're going to talk about them as we talk. We're going to do sort of a, a the chronological way of uh, these disclosures about the, the kind of capacity that municipal entities have in leveraging global outcomes. So so is in your dissertation exactly, it's entitled Sociology of Global Urban Climate Change Mitigation. Well, I'm asking what is necessary for and what has worked for cities around the world to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, most there's no such thing really as national emissions. That's just a spatial aggregation. And really, um, the closest to the actual source is cities. That's where most of the emissions come from. And so I'm measuring a handful of things. I put together what I, um, I put together at this point, the largest uh, climate finance database that I know to exist. I'm working with the UN's cities uh, climate finance um, leadership alliance and uh, gathering yet more data and, and asking okay well um, for the loan finance and also the carbon markets which is you know the carbon market being the world's grand experiment in seeing if we can turn emissions reduction into a profit opportunity does it really work well thus far much to the surprise of no one I'm sure not really other things seem to work but yeah, and, uh, that um, ex- access to expertise as well. You know, when cities join uh, transnational city networks like ICLE, which started in Irvine, we'll talk more about that. Yes, we will. And um, the presence of environmental management consultancies um, seems to be very associated with uh, emissions reduction. That's interesting because you know a hundred of those are in Irvine. Um, is it, wow. be, is it because a lot of, you know, in cities where there's a big environmental industry is where a lot of emissions seem to be going down. Like an agglomeration effect. Yeah, it, it could be. And so the question there is, is it because of the presence of that expertise? Or is it simply because money is being made um, and uh, on environmental services? I might place my uh, tentatively... Um, on the ladder. On the ladder. Not because of cynicism. I think it's practical, but... That you know the hey that's for the qualitative portion of my dissertation. So when I when I dig when I've gone beyond the numbers and dig into what's going on on, on the ground, we will see. And I like what you're saying um, about the, uh, how you're organizing this. It it's a more honest way of looking at. It, usually people pit nation against nation for uh, CO two emissions when mm-hmm. it's the market. It's consumers from other countries are driving those those carbon emissions in another country. So we own what's being belched out of the Chinese pipes. No, that's very, that's very true. I mean, I think it was uh, Steve Davis, who's with uh, the ESS here, did a 
article in the or system science stuff. Yeah, yeah, he, he did an excellent article in the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in which they looked at commodity chains and you know where what our how our activity in particularly in trade I think affects other uh, other countries. But yeah, no, I mean one does have to look at it in the global picture. But most of it does come from uh, most of it comes from cities, and so we come from a place where we I mean collectively look at the world as a sum of its nations. That's not wrong. That's where most of the data has been. But now, when we look at emissions, if we are to more precisely kind of estimate, well, what causes emissions reduction? Well, if you look at the national level, that's a lot of static. There's a, a pretty big margin of error there. And so we looked at the, uh, looked at the city level. It's kind of a race, uh, race for the right data. We need to figure all this out before well, wait, it's too late. But Ben, what do you mean by static on the national level? So what is uh, something's obscuring something, or is it too much, or what? I, I, Break that down a little bit. On the national level, if so we can look uh, around that. So the outcome everyone is interested in is reductions. And, and if I right. had a dry erase board um, here, that would be great. But I don't. There's just vinyl and CDs everywhere. Uh, but he, here, <laughs> here's a way. Here's a way I, I, that I, that I would put it. Uh, the national level, where everyone is interested in, at the point at which the uh, that nations reduce. Okay, they've been uh, increasing. Here's a graph in, this, in the air, and right. whether we're and, and so, and so, and we were so tapering, and now we're this, going back up. Okay, and so and so when we when the emissions level at the national level go down, okay, well, why why does that happen? If we try to use uh, you know an econometric approach to mm-hmm. say, okay, well, manufacturing did this, and then exports did that, and uh, income rose, etc. Well, the the problem is, and I show in my dissertation, is that, that that obscures a lot of variation happening at the lower levels, even at the provincial, state level, the city level. Some provinces, some states are going up, some cities are going, you know, uh, some in China and the U.S., you know, I show that, okay, well, some states are going up over time, but there are cities that are going that are reducing emissions over time, well then why, if you're going to really study what causes emissions to reduce, you have to put it as close under your microscope as possible. And so... And so, so you can turn it off. Well, right, but you al- so you can also uh, accurately estimate, well, what's... You have to look... The pollution source geometry uh, has to be as granular as possible. And so that's what I do. And with that, I find, okay, precisely where are the emissions reductions occurring? And that's where I, that's the area that I put under my microscope. Wow. So the Center for Innovative Diplomacy Mm. and its Municipal Foreign Policy Bulletin was the first global computer network for peace activists and the first book on the U.S.-Soviet citizen diplomacy. Talk about... The forward thinking, it was in the 80s, I don't think it predates that, is it the 80s into like 91 is when it closed out. Mm-hmm. Talk about, Ben, how it channeled the talent and the optimism, with this, especially with the respect to environmental concerns. Okay, well, it was early 1980s. The world was, well, particularly in the U.S., many, many people were fearing nuclear annihilation. This, you know, this was after Vietnam, so the, many people had a lot of protest and activism under their belts. And when the Reagan administration was doing many things that many Americans felt to be wrong, including giving only a slap on the wrist to uh, the South African um, regime uh, for implementing apartheid policies, for the arms race, and for other things. Uh, Well, let me put it this way. There there was a center uh, that... uh, started in Palo Alto and uh, moved to Irvine to uh, 
keep a long story short, uh, Larry Agron, who was the former mayor of Irvine, you know, teamed up with Michael Schumann, who was a, you know, a similarly activist um, uh, Stanford-trained lawyer, grew the Center for Innovative Diplomacy. This was a network that grew to about 5,000 local officials and activists and others around the country. And so they basically they, they galvanized support for sanctuary cities sister cities with the Soviet Union for people-to-people purposes. Uh, intervening in Central America where uh, Reagan was fighting a civil war or where he caused a civil war and there was death in the streets. Uh, sanctuary cities for the refugees fleeing from those areas, uh, divesting from... Apart- Some, we apartheid. can hear lots of analogies with the ongoing now. So, But they were, oh, that was boy, in the it, works then. There was an oh, infrastructure yeah. they were beginning to set up to deal with how cities could react to those That's right. and they pub- threats. Mm-hmm. And they, they published the uh, Bulletin of Municipal Foreign Policy, which was essentially with all of those different uh, city officials telling their stories. Here's how we did it. Here's a policy ordinance. Here's the legal trouble that we're in from the federal government. The federal government is, is threatening to withhold our transportation funds, um, et cetera, et cetera, for doing these, these things. And here's why we're doing them. Those things were published in that. And so uh, Larry and I, we had all of those digitized for the first time, made available uh, in the um, Center for Innovative Diplomacy digital archive. So then the interesting timing. Uh, well, well, we'll talk about where uh, the parallels are opening up again. But it was it closed out in 91. And it's it's a remarkable kind of um, an archive. And, that, and I don't know when... You've been working with Larry Agron in different capacities, but you prob- you saw that archive and you thought we need this to be available to everybody because you you saw the potential in showing this this has been done before. We mm-hmm. need to we need to do this, not hitting the ground running. We need to be speeding uh, to ca- make up for lost time since ninety one because it it outlined all the things that, the threats that we're talking about uh, presently. So well, let's talk a little bit about. The, the content, the composition, the, the extent to what, how would a city be involved? There's, there's no, small, no city too small to be uh, involved in this, and it was throughout the whole country. Yeah, yeah, the, there's, no, no city, there's no city at all too small. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the list of the cities that were involved were, uh, well, they're in the archive, and it's, it's just a Google search away. Um, <laughs> but thank, I mean, it, it is now, and that, that's great. But um, for any city that, uh, uh, f- that had concerned citizens, that wanted to end the arms race, that wanted to, um, to make right the norms that yeah. the Reagan administration was uh, violating at the time, they... It's globalization. They were able to intervene, and and much more so today. Uh, but no city too small. So the norms. Will you want to talk a little bit about those norms? Absolutely no. This is this is the the point in the article I wrote in the Hague Journal of Diplomacy. That is, you know, when you know we we tend to expect um, nations, you know, the national governments to enforce norms, human rights, security, racial equality, but what happens when they fail? And what happens when they fail uh, in a democracy, uh, particularly one in the, in the 80s, which many people were fresh from the Vietnam protests, 
many uh, Americans looked on. They saw that the Reagan administration had um, essentially uh, had funded anti-communist forces in the uh, Central America, but that their own federal government, as a result, was responsible for death in the streets in those countries. They, that, that was a that was a violation of human rights and a violation of the. Uh, the norm of, let's say, racial equality. Well, the Reagan administration only gave a slap on the wrist to South Africa. Um, didn't really do anything about it. So what does what do cities do? It, it, here are the norms. And, you know, as part of sociological theory is, um, you know, world society theory. It's something of, of, of interest to this. They, um, But if in some cases the, uh, the nations fail, to enforce those norms, cities will intervene. This is precisely what they did. They they came in they independently of the nation state. They and in direct defiance and even at the threat. And they say, arms race. Okay, well, nuclear free zones. How, how about that? We have uh, you know we have our zoning power. They did that, and so despite the fear of reprisals from the federal government, they still um, you know, they they still fought back. They intervened directly in foreign affairs so that they may. Uh, enforce those norms and make better the uh, make better the world uh, for themselves. Since the the since the uh, national government, which is supposed to be doing that kind of thing, was not. Well, Ben, is it fair to say that what some of this municipal leadership was doing was sort of spreading out the what was a selective application of human rights, but making human rights applicable in. Uh, regardless of what was uh, the society uh, governed by what kind of system. Everybody, everybody, in Reagan administration, it was certain uh, countries that fit an ideological sort of framework for the Reagan administration. But the cities said, no, 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 everybody has, this this norm applies to all societies. Is it partly that kind of evening up? The kind of- it, it, it wasn't so much geographic, it, it was more... No. It was more. It was more the uh, pottery barn rule. You, you broke it. You bought it. Well, the, bro- the Reagan administration uh, broke, so to speak. Um, people were getting their heads chopped off and uh, shot, and their teeth pulled out in Nicaragua because of the anti-communist forces that Reagan was funding at the time, and it was all to quote unquote fight communism. Well, this is what fighting communism looks like, eh? Uh, many Americans thought, and it was a travesty. So they. Uh, you know, they said, we'll be sanctuary cities. And, uh, you know, to accept your refugees, obviously fleeing from these countries. And uh, the arms race and the fear that it, that it incited, well, um, we'll establish nuclear free zones uh, because th- this, is, this is wrong. It wasn't so much like, oh, well, you know, look at this issue because you haven't looked at those issues, President Reagan. No, it was, it was because this is outright wrong. Um, the racism is wrong. You should not be uh, having your, for example, uh, Schultz, the Secretary of State, harassing George American. Uh, and I have the hard copies, the declassified cache of documents. We can talk about that a little bit later. I brought one of them with me. Uh, harassing American governors, saying, you know, racism is bad, you know, but don't uh, uh, don't divest from apartheid because it's bad for business. That, among other incendiary things, I've found in this class, uh, this cache of declassified documents. But no, I mean, things that were outright wrong, and things that, for you know, I think any civilized society would agree are wrong. They, um, they intervened. They said, "Well, uh, the, our federal government isn't doing it. We have the global capacity now to do it. We will." And they did, and they continue to do so. Thankfully, 
For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Ben Leffel. He's a UCI PhD candidate in sociology, Kugelman Citizen Peacebuilding Research Fellow, and co-creator of the Center for Innovative Diplomacy Digital Archive. And we're devoting the full hour to his work focusing on municipal leadership in the international arena. So cities have voices and mayors are diplomats, points that get lost amidst name your existential threat. So you you make cases for the community effort to address that question. The unwieldy question there is what, if you could give us maybe a case in point that sort of walks us through how the community addressed a point. And, and I, we've had many times the chlorofluorocarbon science, the, the brain trust locally can pair with a municipal leader, which happened mm-hmm. here with Sherwood Rome. We've talked about that many, many different times with different aspects of climate oversight here. If you could give us some other case studies, whether it's working with the, the archive, the declassified documents, some case study where the municipal leadership stepped up and weighed in with the, those norms being offended. Baltimore. Uh, and, okay, here and, we go. And, and and by the way, uh, should uh, should you um, want to make a transition to you know, the climate specifically and yes. uh, uh, away from away from the uh, other things? Just let me know. Otherwise, I'll go on. No, we'll, we'll do that. But right. Um, uh, so aside from the work that Ir- Irvine itself did well, uh, there was a, bl- a small black community in South Africa called Lawaikamp, and it happened to be uh, sister cities with Baltimore and. There was a nearby, and this was somewhat common in uh, during the apartheid regime. Uh, there was a nearby city, a white-managed or white-governed uh, city called George, and they were going to forcibly relocate these, the uh, the the black community. Well, Baltimore wasn't going to have it, what, and the Center for Innovative Diplomacy Archives, the Bolton of Municipal Foreign Policy, covers this in some detail. And you know, it's interesting because you know, Berkeley intervened in a similar way um, in Central America with something somewhat similar as a hostage situation. Anyway, okay. what um, Baltimore did was that they sent assemble, uh, a couple uh, city council members right into uh, right in the middle. So well, this is our sister city, and so what? What they, uh, you know, let's negotiate, and they did, and it was it was a it was an historic thing of city officials that were negotiating directly with a foreign city government on a uh, territorial matter, and they used international pressure to uh, affect exactly the outcome they wanted. Uh, they saved that uh, their sister city, the small black community, from being forcibly relocated. That, among other interesting stories, but I, I think that that might be. One that I had. Um, well, that, that illustrates a great point because we can all think of sister city sorts of institutions all around the country, wherever we're from. And, and it used to be a pretty robust program here. And it, 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 there were some complications that and unraveled. And, mm-hmm. and leadership is a fickle thing. It just can, it can come and it can go. But somehow you're illustrating, though, it's a very good point with Baltimore, that how that sister city had enough of a familiarity with what was going on in the ground in that township or or the municipality in South Africa to turn that whole thing around and I don't did it get where is the press that um, in the bulletin a municipal foreign policy where was the what press covered that 
I can send you what press did cover it. I, of what I do know, and uh, is that you said international pressure. So I was just wondering if it like it moved all the way up the media kind of food chain, letter writing, and getting consulates involved, and okay, th- things of that sort. But the direct interlocutors were the city officials themselves. Okay, so directly exerting that diplomatic pressure, then yeah, not so I, much a media campaign. Oh, yeah, not so much. No, it was very direct. It was very, uh, it was very Interesting. precise, and I believe Desmond. Tutu uh, thanked them for it. Um, that's also, I mean, I'd be happy to provide the link to the archive in which it covers it. It's fascinating. Well, I'll, I'll keep the eScholarship.org. I'll put all that link in in the podcast summary so people can open up and folks spend some time camping in and around there because it, it's the parallels to today are are staggering. Absolutely. It, just as cities intervened then, cities are today doing the same thing when Trump uh, with, uh, announced uh, t- uh, intent to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. And what do we see cities do? And states and regions and provinces around the world recommitting to the Paris Accord. That was the very same thing, and we had to do it for survival. So we see this mechanism of bottom-up leadership is absolutely necessary for a range of diplomatic outcomes. In this case, climate change, um, long-term existence of our species. So you were talking a little bit about the tactical advantages available to the municipal leadership that uh, leverages the local constituency and the local businesses. So is there any sort of geographic scope, any municipalities? Um, uh, we, we talk about none of them are too small, but they're, it's just ones that happen to have a, the, the right kind of that the secret sauce of the right kind of leadership locally. Well, I just want to see how that works. So we'll t- we can talk about where we are now, the, ironically speaking, with our local leadership. But what what there's got to be something in your sociology data collection. You can see, oh, there's something very persistent about what is making it happen. Maybe just an intimacy factor. Well, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, the. Some of the local leaders were uh, that were elected local officials. They had, um, they were Vietnam protesters. They and but they don't have to be. It's just that they have to simply agree with it. And the constituencies, the voters, the people to who they, uh, you know, who they serve, also felt the same way about a range of issues, particularly the uh, particularly the nuclear threat particularly the arms race. And so when they brought that to the table, that moved things forward. Uh, the norms, so to speak, reached them, but they also had the economic capacity to, to mobilize. But um, uh, Okay, so some, some sophistication, and that's what economic capacity gives sophistication to a diplomatic mobilization. Yeah. And, but I, I, I really do, at, for, with your sociological sort of... M- all this granular d- data that you're working with, though, is did you start to spot like there there is a very critical leadership quotient in the formula? Uh, not not that I can say. I mean, really, uh, I think I think it's there tends to be consensus uh, between the local officials and the like I said. I mean, there has to be consensus between the local officials and the um, constituents that these things are important issues to cover and. They mobilize. Uh, they, you know, it's not necessarily that they're progressive cities. I mean, uh, no, I, I wasn't actually thinking of only that label. I'm thinking if, if there, the any, just it's just the sort of the leadership sort of nature, in the, in an individual uh, on the local level. If it's 
maybe it's some demographics that are involved in the constituents and the the, the leaders mobilizing. There's well, got to be something going on there. Uh, well, I mean, maybe that is a question of uh, maybe that's a question of, of the. Uh, the worldview of some of these people who who, who uh, carry with them kind of the lessons of Nuremberg uh, and uh, Hiroshima. These things should not uh, happen. Um, just because the federal government is doing it doesn't mean it's right. Um, Those norms we were talking about earlier. Exactly. The, the norms we were talking about earlier. I'd like to attribute, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm more of a political economics guy, but you know, the, uh, the quotient does seem to be uh, connectivity to awareness of uh, what are world-approved um, uh, norms? Uh, that is, what is the modern definition of racial equality, of security, of human rights? Well, it certainly wasn't what the Reagan administration was doing, and that's um, and cities intervened and acted directly uh, against that. And policy entrepreneurship was certainly a thing. You know, people like Jeb Brugman and Cambridge at the time, Michael Schumann, Larry Agron, Irvine, well, they were policy entrepreneurs. They they took great courage to do what they did. And so I, I suppose the leadership quotient in the form of uh, willingness to do new things, new, difficult, yet necessary, could be part of it. But I don't know how you'd quantify that. Okay, so... Without trying to put you on the spot, I have a really, it's a very sort of um, a kind of a, a general kind of way, uh, analogy I'd like to perhaps understand what makes that leadership and it's the constituency move on and mobilize in these ways uh, to supporting the norms. It's, I'm just guessing, Ben, if, if there's, it's a, let's say there's a bandwidth in that leader's situation. And if your bandwidth is jammed up by ideological concerns, and you know, we call it red meat in the current days, the red meat that the administration throws to the supporters. But the, if ideology can, and dogma can jam up your bandwidth so you don't see what is the offense perpetrated in the area, and you, you miss entirely that opportunity to act on those norms in that where those people's norms are being violated outside of the country. I mean, that kind of a thing, that kind of that capacity. If the bandwidth is overloaded with this kind of constant sort of, you know, the red scare and all that kind of thing, you miss the, the violence in the streets in Guatemala and Honduras and Costa Rica and Nicaragua or in the Middle East. You're focusing on that constant sort of ideological mantra if you're not concerned you have an opportunity to see broadly that you see you, you have a capacity to see what is being perpetrated against those human beings in those societies more of a social networks question i suppose after all many of the uh, cities that became aware local officials like became aware of these issues were uh, they housed missionaries catholic missionaries coming back from those countries uh, they housed the churches of the, the of the missionaries who made mission to Nicaragua and elsewhere who brought back the stories of these things happening. And so it wasn't just local officials and it wasn't just your ordinary citizen. It was also uh, communities of faith, particularly in uh, Central America. But And for, you know, people animate that geography of, uh, uh, you know, of events and it's individual people who 
for one reason or another were connected to it. It could be businesses that were, you know, seeing what was going on in um, South Africa at the time and thought, oh, this is unacceptable. It could, it could uh, part of it's the press. I mean, some of it is, is a bit overdetermined. There are many okay. different and, and not necessarily uniform causes, but um, yeah, it, it is something of a social networks uh, question of um, who brings the information and when, but that does kind of activate those conditions, I think. Okay. And then diplomacy, do you distinguish that from activism or is activism a, a gr- an ingredient of the diplomacy? Well, how global, Luminous- uh, how, how global is, is, is your activism, right? Uh, how global is it? Does it the, how, how partnered with governments is it? You put the more so to both of those questions, the more diplomatic it becomes. I mean, the globalization sort of enables both and kind of blurs that line in the same way that cities were not traditional actors in foreign affairs, but they're increasingly becoming more so. Well, activists and activism is becoming a bit more diplomatic in nature as it involves the polity of uh, both countries, both locales across international borders. Uh, Complex times, those lines, those traditional lines are blurring. So, Ben, the the polity and uh, the municipal diplomacy, does the more the leadership exerted on the municipal level, you see a, a feedback loop into the local constituency, the local uh, business sector to be involved more in where that, diplom- that municipal diplomacy is being leveraged? I mean, the more, the more they're involved, the more constituents understand their role in supporting that broader cause. Well, it, it can come. It can come from the ground up. Often, so to speak, the uh, often it is the constituents, the people, uh, students, librarians, scientists, engineers, uh, everyone but the local officials that brings it up. Concerned citizens, really. Sometimes it's concerned local uh, officials. It comes. It really is just a matter of who brings it to the table first. But what does matter is consensus between the. Um, the government, and uh, the constituencies. For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org, and we've got our KUCI handles all over the social media. My guest is Ben Leffel. He's a UCI PhD candidate in sociology, Kugelman Citizen Peacebuilding Research Fellow, and a co-creator of the Center for Innovative Diplomacy Digital Archive, as I said, we're devoting the full hour to his work, focusing on municipal leadership in the international arena. And I'm, you, I've got, I'm s- sending all these quirky questions that, in his methodical way, are sort of, <laughs> we're, I'm shaking it up a bit uh, to try to bring up what it, it, it is occurring to me. What is the dynamic in play here? And so I, what I, I think it's an irony that this initiative that was launched in the 80s by these visionary municipal leaders. They, they hatched it, they nurtured it, they operationalized this from all of their, their municipalities. The lead by a council now in, in where we, we hatched some of those initiatives before, the current council with which we are dealing here in Irvine, I can say from watching this since the early 90s, I can see where there is no vision. It's kind of skating off of 
institutions formed by their visionary predecessors. When you go through the archives as you're digitizing these and making them available for all of us to take a look at, so I, I now here's a, <laughs> this is not a sociological data, uh, economic data uh, analysis. I want, I want for uh, the psychological aspect of what it's like to see exactly the same thing that we're talking about now with, with increased sense of urgency. It was being taken up the exact same lines with respect to, you know, the nefarious impacts of plastic products with CO2 emissions, all that was being discussed in the 80s and the measures they were stepping on. How, does, how did you feel as a, I don't know what your actual age is, that's not important, but you're a much younger guy than I'm, and, but, and you're going to inherit all this mess when I'm good and gone. But how did, it, how did it strike you personally, Ben, when you thought, here they had it, they had it in their grasp, and nothing happened? Well, the, better late than never, it would be my first response. They you have to to I, cope, right? So the city of Irvine actually is uh, right now. I mean, it, it is the cities around, the, particularly around the U.S., have already taken to this many years ago. But uh, the city of Irvine finally is um, committing to, and I'm uh, I'm on the uh, on the team helping plan it. Uh, a greenhouse gas inventory and a climate action plan. The City officials are fine. They're hiring a uh, environmental management consultancy to uh, help them um, implement the inventory and figure out where the emissions are coming from in Irvine. Actually, I mean it's tw- it's 2019. I mean they, they could have done well, it only years 30 ago. years later. Yeah. Yeah, but but in any case, um, a- as far as the more general question, um, you know, we we have gone from one man-made threat to the survival of our species: nuclear weapons, hydrogen bomb to the next climate change and you have to wonder i mean not ju- you know there were previous irvine leaders in recent memory who were climate change deniers um and you know all the way up to uh, from local level to the you know the federal level to our very own president you have to wonder how differently reagan would be remembered if he were to have said well, the Soviets, they don't have nuclear weapons. It's fake news. It's a Chinese hoax. Yet that's precisely the equivalent uh, we have in the White House today. Um, <laughs> and just so the record's perfectly clear, uh, f- if we fail to reduce emissions uh, and the world rises in temperature two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, well, we will have, st- among many other things, Storms of a strength for which there is no amount of federal emergency response funding in this country or any other for that matter that will protect against or rebuild from the damage that will be uh, incurred. And if we get, if we really uh, fail and we get to four degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, well, um, it's game over for human civilization. Uh, Global famine um and uh yeah global famine uh, not 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 everyone will die but then again we'll we're having the the rather dr strange love ask conversation of oh well the casualties will only be in 600 500 600 million is that, that but, but but that's okay well no it's not it's not it's not okay at all and it is existential um but uh you have to i kind of recoil in a bit of personal terror when i 
when I hear climate change deniers, uh, the president and also um, previous uh, Irvine officials uh, deny climate change. And I have to wonder, are we too dumb as a species to survive? And uh, the more the, you know, the more people like that are out there, the more that unfortunately we have to bear the survival cost. And Ben, you use sort of catastrophic kinds of markers, but the there's that slow creep of, you know, uh, conditions that make it more difficult for crops to be cultivated. I mean, so it's a much slower that the that the dying off of a food source in the ocean is a very gradual thing. So that's it. there's the subtle changes, and then there's the catastrophic ones that that, that all rack up a huge economic tab they do it's a lot more i mean i suppose we can understand how it was much more jarring uh the fear of being vaporized by a hydrogen bomb much more jarring than the slow creep that you're talking about but the slow creep is is the main problem today of course the nuclear threat is still there very much so but uh how do we f- how do we get others to really understand? I mean, essentially, the the risk is that the threat as we see it unfolding is slow enough, but it'll be on top of us soon, that it doesn't compel enough people to sufficient action. And I suppose in something of a, uh, what, world the day stood still, something like that, uh, right. humanity only makes the... the critical turn when they're at the precipice, or in this case, when they see crops begin to fail, oh, then they'll do it. Then they'll say, oh, sorry, fossil fuel industry, maybe. Or if we are indeed too dumb to survive, then we'll just say, oh, no, we we enjoy our economic prosperity. We're just going to go on burning fossil fuels. Of course, the irony being that you cannot enjoy economic prosperity if you're dead. Not not one bit. Well, so the opportunity... Now, one, there's opportunity. Let's uh, get into a, this constructive a attack as we possibly can. With the archive, do you see that there is a way of communicating some of the analogies that you're using here uh, from the 80s and uh, a way of showing how we ought to be mobilizing now? Is that That's part of your motivation for making that the foreign policy bulletin uh, archive available on the digitized platform? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I think it might, it, it might be good to talk about uh, ICLE, I think. Please. Yes, that's right. We were, that's exactly what we're, this is our, yes, uh, exactly. That is, after all, I think what you uh, principally invited me here to, to talk about. Exactly. Uh, right. And I, I, have, I happen to have brought um, with me all the original materials. But uh, thankfully, I can just uh, kind of summarize it here. So the part of the story everybody knows, or hopefully everybody knows, and I'll go right from the part of the story everybody knows, um, for most people, to uh, the part that most do not. And just to say, the ICLEG is the Local Governments for Sustainability. It's an international strategic alliance. And it, as you said earlier, it's a part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And so you can talk then to the role that Irvine has in establishing the entity and what you're doing with it contemporarily. Yep. Sure. Okay. Um, part of the story 
that everyone or most people know is that uh, mid-1970s, Sherry Rowland discovered, oh, wait, Sherry Rowland and his graduate student researcher, Marlene Molina, yep. because after all, we grad students are part of the scientific discovery right process, o. lest we forget. But we have we have talked about the CFC. Right. Um, and so they... Analogies. Right. So they... Um, it takes about a year, uh, over over a decade for the nations of the world to come together and say, okay, CFCs from the top down will ban them uh, so that we can save the planet. Well, it was, that was by 1987. And 1989 rolls around, a few years pass. And uh, Irvine Mayor Larry Agrin looks on with a decade of very innovative activism and innovative diplomacy under his belt and determines, you know, this is not, this is, isn't going quickly enough. So what he does is he does a few things. First, and many people are aware of this, Irvine becomes the first city in the U.S. to implement a CFC ban. And um, and then he also teams up with Sherry Rowland himself. They join together at the Beckman Center in what was called the North American Stratospheric Protection Accord, SPA. This is all in the archives. Um, tomorrow, actually, myself and some students are going to digitize this officially, so it'll okay. be out very soon. Okay, we can soon. all see it. Yeah, but um, and they did a few things at this at this uh, accord. And what they did was they uh, they brought together several American officials and Canadian officials, local officials. The idea being they could implement the Montreal Protocol from the bottom up because the nations needed help, and. They pledged to do that, to implement Irvine-style CFC bans. They also pledged to do to add to the current global governance framework. Why not have an international secretariat of city governments that cooperate horizontally with one another in that kind of a network fashion, uh, irrespective of national boundaries, independently from the national governments? and share knowledge and resources so that they may tackle not just banning CFCs and sharing knowledge of how to do it, but also um, well, a, a range of environmental problems, and they did that. And so how are we going to do it? We don't know exactly how, but we'll, we'll figure it out. International Secretariat, right? Well, it took maybe about a year for, before the UN uh, heard about this, uh, UNEP, UN Environmental Program, and they extended invitation. They said, we like this idea. And That's all, a fast reaction. Uh, Only well, a year. I mean, if, if for the UN, I, I guess, but yeah. I, I suppose uh, when it's important enough, the bureaucracies actually do something, and all of those things are in this right uh, in this that I brought here today. Uh, but they they said, come to the UN, come to New York. We will provide for you in the kind of a World Congress of um, sustainable local sustainable governance. A uh, two hundred go local government officials from around the world. And we will give life to that idea. And so the Irvine leaders, Larry Agron, Michael Schumann, Jeb Brugman, um, Jeb Brugman, who is now works with uh, 100 Resilient Cities and was the uh, one of the first secretaries general of the of ICLE. He, uh, you know, he was the, kind of the mastermind behind it. They went to the UN and 200 local officials gathered and they they launched what was called, they called it this, what will we call this international secretariat, let's call it the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. And, and so it was. And cities from around the world joined it. How to ban CFCs, how to, uh, how to reduce CO2, uh, how to do a range of things. And it grew to 
today to become the largest environment, global environmental city network on the planet. It has facilitated so very much activism uh, around the world, but you know, it has enabled cities to to obtain knowledge, to share knowledge and resources of how to reduce emissions, of how to solve water, uh, recycling, a range of environmental problems. This bottom-up governance is, um, is, is crucial for, well, not just for helping slow the pro progress of climate change, but um, well, I improving life across a, you know, th this is kind of the horizontalization of uh, global governance. It's a fascinating thing. And, and the thing is that it is today part of the UN. It has ushered in, ICLE has ushered in cities onto the, uh, into dialogue with formal, uh, traditional nation state and supranational UN structures and global governance. That started in Irvine. And that's something that I think we should all marvel at. That is a story of good science policy. It's what happens when knowledge centers like a university cooperates with the local government, but it doesn't just stay there. It's in this case, it reached all around the, the world. world. So you mentioned in the very beginning about the, the proximity of the research in municipal leadership to advance a, um, a, some, an activation, in this case, for, for uh, stemming global climate change. So um, it's Sherwood Rowland, I think he also embodied that re- assessing his role, not he was not a conventional researcher. So maybe in this opportunity that he hatched with a very opportunistic, as you said, a municipal entrepreneur that's Larry Agron, that they both saw roles that they didn't and wouldn't have envisioned before, and that Sherwood Rowland led as a, a tireless advocate for not just the ozone depletion situation, but generally in climate change, so that other researchers dealing with their municipal leadership could see in that model that what they could activate for their respective leaders. So, so it seems like horizontalization of this global influence is really, those examples are right, right here in Irvine. That's right, and I think it's something to marvel at. We should be proud of that history and also uh, the effect it's having. I mean, like I said, it's one of my variables from which I look at from 2005 to 2013, what causes, green, what causes cities to reduce greenhouse gases. And one of those things is participating in networks like ICLE. We see the impact. So is there any kind of municipal organizational entity, like uh, we've talked about horizontalization. Do you see where there would be a, a municipal platform to interview 2020 presidential candidates? Well, I, I guess... Um, Debates and stuff. Well, I, I think, um, I guess I'm, ask, I'm wondering if you're talking about uh, locally in Irvine or just uh, in... Wherever. We can, you know, let, not the, we're not going to bring up like the U.S. Mayor's Conference, but it's just if there is a, not, it's, ICLE is an international organization, but if there is a municipal kind of uh, group that could be the platform to challenge presidential candidates to a debate to talk about very specific fixes. I like it a lot. I, I love that idea. Uh, I don't know specifically which one. 
Uh, well, let's try it. Let's work on that. Yeah. Let, okay. Yeah. I know let, you got a dissertation finished for next year. <laughs> yeah. I. I um, right. I. I might. I might make a a plug for anyone who is interested in. Um, Do. In. Um, kind of following, you know. Exemplars today. So Eric Garcetti. Yes. Um, yeah. L.A. Mayor. He hired Nina Hishigian, who is a brilliant um, practitioner. Uh, she uh, is the first vice mayor for international affairs for the city of Los Angeles. She recently wrote an article in Foreign Policy called Cities Will Determine the Future of Diplomacy. She put every, it, was, it was wonderfully astute. Anyone interested in this subject ought to follow her career with great interest. I know that I do. You know, I think that that's, uh, that's one thing I wanted to make sure that I, that I said. Last thing, I, have, I might make a... Uh, make mention uh, I have a letter from here f the, uh, from my uh, uh, cache of declassified documents uh, from Bernie Sanders to President Reagan dated October 26 1982 essentially it was a critique of the uh, of the, uh, the of the arms race but precisely the same I think uh, with regard to climate change the same critique could be leveled um, Dear President Reagan, um, you know, he, he talks about at a time when the United States is spending X number of billion dollars on the military. Um, it's imperatively a major, major change. He closes uh, for centuries. The human race is engaged in the insanity of war. Unfortunately, with the advent of nuclear weapons, we do not have centuries more to figure out how to end war. At most, we have a few years. Please think courageously and boldly. The survival of humanity is in your hands. Yours, Bernard Sanders. That same advice, that same boldness and courageous leadership, the same uh, astuteness that is needed, um, that is a point that needs to be repeated today to the president. That's a point that everyone needs to understand. Those, those are the stakes. And that is, I, I would hope, that that same wisdom would, would be brought up um, to presidential candidates as they debate for 2020, and that um, they are also challenged to say, well, city leadership is critical. Multi-level governance is critical to solve this problem. It cannot be just top-down. And that's all of what we talked about today. It's multi-level. And to get those global, national outcomes, it's local. It's not just top-down, bottom-up as well. So that's, I suppose, my message in a nutshell. There is a lot more that could have been said. And I'm um, hoping maybe we can return to some of this as perhaps something is topically developing and we can bring you back here. My guest has been Ben LaFell, UCI PhD candidate in sociology, Kugelman citizen, peace building research fellow at UCI, co-creator of the Center for Innovative Diplomacy Digital Archive, loaded, loaded with amazing documents here in studio with me. Ben, thanks for taking all the time. This was a marvel, and there's so much more. Thanks for being on the show today. Pleasure is all mine. Well, this Sunday, the California Redistricting Commission Public Information Forum. This time it's going to be at the Fullerton Police Department at 237 Commonwealth Avenue. They'll cover how to become a commissioner, participate as a community organizer, and represent communities of interest related to redrawing district boundaries. It's free and reservations are highly recommended. I'll be posting the link on the podcast summary for the show today. That's my wrap. Next week I'll have on UCI Poli-Sci Professor Davin Phoenix. It's time for another good hard look at identity politics and the role of privilege 
in the higher education admissions process and underrepresented minorities' success in higher ed. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.